Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 16th, 2015. should warn you, there's not exactly a theme today. Kinda. Not really. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop and open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to actually open up our Bibles and compare what people are saying in God's name to God's Word in context, using sound biblical exegesis to see if what they're telling us, the doctrines they are teaching us, are if in fact they are biblical, sound, orthodox, Christian doctrines, or if the doctrines they're teaching us are things that they've made up by ripping God's Word out of context and weaving it together into a tapestry of deceit, if you would. And over and again, we find that, well... And so many of the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, uh, self-styled prophets, prophetesses, uh, and folks like that uh, put forward by the evangelical industrial complex whose books we need to be buying, whose uh, study materials need to make up our small group Bible studies, whose sermons we need to be listening to and things like that, that what they're teaching us is not true. It's not sound doctrine. It's something completely different. And uh, as we note here at Fighting for the Faith, God's Word is very specific that the job of a pastor or a preacher or a teacher who speaks in the name of Jesus, they are to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, rightly handling God's Word. And unfortunately, so many people are not. And as a result of of this, they're not actually setting people free. They're keeping them in the dark, putting them in bondage. They're not shining the light of the gospel Instead, you, you can almost say it's it's a light that is dark. <laughs> Maybe that's a weird way of putting it. Maybe I'm too postmodern there. And uh, so what we're going to be doing today uh, on Fighting for the Faith, we're going to do a few things. Uh, we, we obviously, in hour number two, we're going to be getting to contestant number five in our worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, and that's uh, Jim Burgeon from Flatiron Church. And, uh, boy, I got to tell you, I wrestled with this one. And uh, the reason I put it into the mix is because it's not 
insanely crazy like some of the stuff we've been hearing this week. Instead, I think this is really dangerous. It's an it's an extremely dangerous Easter sermon because it well it uses biblical language and biblical words, but the words have different meanings. And so, you know, on the surface, what would happen is, is that if you went in there basically giving him the benefit of the doubt and you weren't really listening carefully, you would say, that sounded like a completely biblical sermon to me. But if you actually take the time to say, wait a second, what is he actually saying? What is the point that he's really making? You'll see that the point he's making is something way different way different than uh, than uh, what the resurrection accounts or sound biblical doctrine or Christian sanctification as taught by Scripture teaches us. So th- this is going to be a, a more slippery one, if you would. It, and you, yeah, I've used the, ter- the term in the past, uh, you know, for truthy. There's a lot of truthy things in here. Truthy, yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're almost right-ish. Anyway, but uh, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get to uh, the uh, sermon review today. So I threw that in kind of as an outlier, not because it's like outrageously over-the-top awful, but because it's subtle, and the subtlety is hiding something really awful. So yeah, you, you'll kind of see what we're talking about. But uh, what we're going to do in uh, hour number one, uh, we... <laughs> oh, man... We are going to listen to a part of uh, the uh, Easter sermon delivered by Phil Pringle and note something that he says that is extremely dangerous but is actually so common that what we are going to hear from him is something if you ever were to read the uh, the writings of the church fathers. For instance, the catechetical lectures of uh, Cyril of Jerusalem. He talks about you know heretics from his time. And uh, and uh, one in particular is well says something similar to or advocates for something similar to what we're hearing from uh, Phil Pringle, and it's just deadly dangerous. And we'll talk about that uh, when we get there. We'll take a break, and then when we come back from the break, we have an extended Rick Warren update that we're going to be doing. We're going to be listening to a sermon of Rick Warren's, and boy, I tell you, I mean. I mean, I've always said that he's a Bible twister, but this is like over-the-top bad. I mean, it's that kind of bad in Bible twisting, and I mean, it's wow. Uh, But the name of the the sermon is Daring Faith, Daring to Imagine. Daring to Imagine. Imagination. And so we'll uh, listen to that, and then, of course, hour number two, like I said, we're going to be listening to... Uh, Jim Burgeon's Easter sermon, and he says some stuff in there that wow, that you know, you'll you'll kind of get that. But anyway, so that's what we're gonna do today. And uh, since we're gonna start off with, uh, um, well, well, this is kind of one of those things. How do I categorize um, Phil Pringle of uh, C three? Is he a vision casting leader? Well, yes, but he is also a man who claims to be a prophet. So I, I'm going to lump him in with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate, and uh, we'll get right to it. So uh, let's get going. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there, when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in the rear. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. 
and give him a twist, a flick of the wrist. That's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. Roll a bell, a ball. Roll a bell, a ball. Sing and roll a bell, a ball, a penny, a pitch. All right, that's. Uh, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. One of the themes music we use here at Fighting for the Faith for the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate, which, of course, I do believe that Phil Pringle, he's kind of a crossover leader, if you would. He's both a vision-casting leader as well as uh, somebody who is a self-styled prophet and false prophet at that. We've documented that here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of his Easter sermon, and this is deadly. And, and I'm in, in the truest sense of the word bodily, deadly, and even spiritually deadly uh, stuff that he's uh, advocating in this sermon. So uh, let's check in with his Easter sermon down at C3 in uh, Oxford Falls, uh, Australia. Here we go. There is a power that comes with Jesus. It's called resurrection. Everybody say resurrection. So there's a power that comes with Jesus. It's called resurrection. Everybody say resurrection. Why do these guys do this? Everybody say heresy. Okay, anyway, so uh, yeah, you kind of get the idea. So we're already off to a bad start, really bad start. And uh, so there's a power. It's resurrection power. Everybody say resurrection. But I want you to know that he doesn't just bring resurrection. He actually is the resurrection. Look at the scripture in John 11. Now, this is true. Jesus is the resurrection. Resurrection is not a what, it's a who, and the who is Jesus. Verse, is it 25? Yeah. Jesus said to her, everybody say this with me, I am the resurrection. Come on, let's try it again. You ready? We'll start from the beginning. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me Though he may die, he shall live. Now this is, this is like a moment where Jesus announces his identity. There's plenty of other times where he does that. Constantly reaffirms who he is. He, 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 what? He announces his identity? Uh, <laughs> something screw is going on here. And that describes what he does. Uh Because when you know who you are, you'll be blessed in what you do. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Um, Wow. All right. So we we got a major problem here. So apparently Jesus, you know, you know, he was practicing some very important spiritual principle of regarding spiritual identity and things like when you announce who you are, you'll. How did he put it? Let me back this up. Who he is. Yeah. And that describes what he does. Yeah. Because when you know who you are, you'll be blessed in what you do. Yeah. See, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, um, he wasn't talking about you. No, he, he really wasn't. And there's not some principle that you're supposed to apply to your life here uh, that, you know, about knowing who you are and then you, you'll be able to do what you're supposed to do. Or how did he put it again? Yeah. You'll be blessed in what you do. Yeah. So as soon as you, I, you know, you declare who you are, then you'll be blessed. See, that's not why Jesus said, "I'm the resurrection and the life." James says that the man who forgets not 
who he is will be blessed in everything he puts his hand to. Uh, what? That's not what James says at all. Um, James chapter 1 is uh, what we need to look at here. Uh, we'll look at uh, James chapter 1. We'll start at verse 22. Here's what James says. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, uh, deceiving yourselves. But if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and per, uh, perseveres, being, a, being no hearer uh, who forgets, but a doer who, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So yeah, so notice what, uh, let me play again the quote here from Phil Pringle because what he said about James is patently false. Listen again. James says that the man who forgets not who he is will be blessed in everything he puts his hand to. Yeah, no, that's not what James said. In fact, James wasn't talking about remembering who you are. He was using a metaphor. Uh, and the point is, is to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And he says, the one who looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like, uh, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being uh, no hearer but forget... Uh, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The point is being a doer of the word has nothing to do with identity. You're taking the metaphor that uh, James is using to explain his concept and making that the reality. Now, when somebody does this, they are up to no good. And believe me when I tell you, Phil Pringle is up to no good in this sermon. James says that the man who forgets not who he is, will be blessed in everything he puts his hand to. Jesus constantly identified who he was, one, for everybody else to understand why he was coming to earth, what he was doing here. He would say, I am the door. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. And he would keep reiterating these things because in everybody's life, that is the weakest link Uh, So the reason why Jesus would say, I'm the bread of life, I'm the door, is because in everybody's life, identity is their weakest link. What? In everybody's life, that is the weakest link in the chain of your faith, your (laughs) self-image. Oh, man. Okay, so the reason why Jesus said, I'm the door, I'm the bread of life, I'm the the, the water, uh, you know, all things like, you know, things like that. Um, and I am the way, the truth. It's because you know self-image is the weakest link when it comes to faith. That's the reason why Jesus said it. Maybe the reason why Jesus said things like that is because he was revealing things about himself, and he is the author and the perfecter of our faith and our great God and Savior. So maybe these are important things for us to understand about Jesus. But notice what Phil Pringle's doing. He's taking these texts where Jesus is saying these things about himself, and he's saying, and the reason why is because it's really all about you. Wow. Who you think you are. A lot of us feel so uh, discouraged about who we are. We, we let our life's achievements reflect back to us whether we're successful or not. Rather than coming to the Bible and seeing what the Word of God says, who you are in Christ, you're qualified, you're regenerated, you're sanctified, just... Yeah, so the reason why Jesus did that was, you know, I'm the door, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is because he was modeling for us, you know, affirmations about ourselves and our identity so that we can follow his example and, you know, and focus on us. 
Boy, talk about narcissism. Justified, you're born again, you're a brand new creation, you're kings in life. And when you see that and you do not forget, don't let anything dislodge that from your thinking, you'll start to be blessed in what you put your hands to. Oh, yeah. As soon as you realize you're the bee's knees and you always remember that, then you're going to be blessed at whatever you put your hands to. Which biblical text actually says that? There is no biblical text that says this. What uh, Phil Pringle is doing is literally spinning a yarn. He's literally rolling and smoking his own theology here. This is not biblical doctrine. But when people start to look at life and reflect back and say, well, that's what I am. I failed at that. I had a divorce there. I'm a divorcee. Or I had a, had a problem there. I'm an ex-prisoner. Or I'm an addict. Or I'm this or I'm that. As long as you keep relating those things to yourself, you will live in defeat. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you've committed adultery and you say, well, I'm an adulterer, or you've stolen something, you say, well, I'm a thief. Or, you know, if you've lied about somebody, you say, you're a liar. You know, which, by the way, when you start talking like that, it's getting really close to you confessing that you are a sinner. Uh, what does John say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice, he's not, he's not advocating confessing that you're a sinner, confessing that you've sinned. No, 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 no. These, you're talking this way about yourself. Well, that's going to get in the way of whatever grandiose thing that you're supposed to be doing in life, and it's going to hold you back. So what he's advocating for is the exact opposite of confessing your sins. But here today, you ought to take a hold of that message I preached on Good Friday morning. It ends here. Jesus said it's finished. And you can stop referring to yourself the way everybody else and all your circumstances have been relating to you and start to do what Jesus did and constantly reaffirm to himself who he was. Do you oh, yeah. So you got to do what Jesus did. And you need to reaffirm to yourself, you know, who you are. You know, you are great. And, you know, and that's, that's the reason why Jesus said, I'm the door and I'm the... Wow. This is demonic. Do you think he ever struck doubts? Of course he did. When he was in the wilderness, doubts entered his mind, if you are. Uh, those doubts were not part of Jesus' mind. They came from outside. Those were the temptations of the devil. So now, apparently, Jesus is the ultimate example of a guy who knew his identity and you know, and engaged in positive self-talk, even though he supposedly had doubts about his own identity, uh, he he wrestled with those things. In and of course, is Phil Pringle rightly handling the text that talks about Jesus's you know, temptation in the wilderness of the devil? There's no indication in any of the Gospels that Jesus doubted who he was at all. Who you say you are? If you are the Son of God. The devil had heard the voice of God come out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And because it is the weakest link in the chain, I'll acknowledge... Yeah, that self-image is the weakest link in the chain. And because it is the weakest link in the chain, our acknowledgement of who we actually are, our self-image, we need to know our self-image from God's point of view, not just from our own. Now, again, where is this doctrine taught explicitly in Scripture? Which epistle can we go to that talks about the importance of a positive, healthy, 
self-image and identity regarding yourself and the importance of saying positive things about you. There is no text that teaches this. This is him ripping all of these verses out of context and weaving them into this false doctrine that he's spinning out. What does God say about me? What does the Father in heaven say about me? He says you're beautiful. He says you're magnificent. You might look at Actually, Jesus says to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations, Luke 24. So um, if God's going to talk about us in that sense, he's going to say that we're forgiven. Uh-huh. Jesus said of the, you know, of the Jews of his time that didn't believe in him that you are of your father the devil. So Jesus didn't always engage in positive self-affirmation and talk and things like that. You might look in magazines and look at all these things and re- compare with them and think, well, I'm not really. But you need to come to the Bible, come to the Word of God, and understand what Jesus himself is saying about you. When he was in that wilderness, the devil came to him and said, if you are, anything that starts with an if is designed to undermine your faith. So he said, if you are the son of God, why don't you just prove it to yourself? Why don't you affirm who you are by your outward circumstances? Whatever you act on, you will strengthen. If you act on an if, you're going to strengthen doubt in your life. And which biblical text says this? There isn't a single text that teaches this. And Jesus knew that if he started to try and figure out who he was by outward signs and circumstances, that that would set him out for a fall later on. And where does Jesus say this or any of the apostles say this about Jesus' knowledge about himself? Once you start relying on stones turning to bread... And protection on the outside from death and falling and all these other things, you're going to be set up for a moment where something wrong happens in your circumstances. And because you put your faith on those things, it's going to defeat you from the inside. I want you to make a choice here tonight, a commitment to believe the Bible when it contradicts your circumstances. And here comes the really deadly part. Not only is this narcissistic, and I would even say demonic teaching that we're getting from Phil Pringle here, but it, I mean, it's so deadly. It's so deadly that literally some of the people hearing his voice and believing this false doctrine, their lives are in mortal danger. Listen in. Believe the word of God. It says you're healed, even though you might be sick. So what are you going to believe? The doctor's report or your father's report in heaven? He says you're healed. Uh huh. Let me play that again. Believe the word of God. It says you're healed, even though you might be sick. So what are you going to believe? The doctor's report or your father's report in heaven? He says you're healed. Where does God's word say I'm healed if I'm sick? That is not a promise given from God regarding our our state right now under the cursed creation. Each and every one of us is going to die. And so a doctor's report that says that you're sick, he's saying that that doctor's report is a lie and that God's word says you are healed. God's word does not promise you healing. It does not. You can ask God to heal you and he may do so. But there is no guarantee that you are healed. And so this is, I mean, this is demonic to the core is the best way I can describe this, but it's the people who are hearing this are in mortal danger. Why? Because people who are hearing this 
are going to say, well, I've got to, I've got to do what God has called me to do. You know, I, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, I have a treatable form of cancer, but I've got to get into, you know, into treatment immediately. Well, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the doctor who says that I'm sick and that I need to get treatment? Or am I going to believe God's word? Because, you know, prophet Phil Pringle says, God's word says I'm healed. So, you know, I, I can't trust my circumstances. I've got to stretch out in true faith and believe and grasp on to this word that God has given that says I'm healed. And you know what's going to happen to that person? That person is literally going to not be treated. And by not being treated, their condition is going to go from uh, treatable to untreatable. They're going to go from having the ability to knock it down, go into remission or you know or getting cured or whatever to having no hope whatsoever and their death is going to be hastened. And as a result of it because they're not seeking medical treatment, they're going to die. And because they're also believing this false demonic doctrine, they're not hearing the gospel here. You know, they're going to die twice. First death is the is is the death of their body. Second death is them being thrown into the lake of fire because they are not believing the truth. This is not; these are not the words of somebody preaching Christ and Him crucified for our sin. Listen again. Even though you might be sick, so what are you going to believe? The doctor's report or your father's report in heaven? He says you're healed, but I'm sick. Stop believing what you're feeling and what you're looking at. Stop believing this word of God and say, you know what? Tonight, I'm going to make a commitment to a higher way of living. I'm going to live by what I can't see. I'm going to live by the invisible. I'm going to live attached to the word of God. And it can seem like a real challenge when everything is the opposite to what you are believing. But here tonight, I want you to switch on, like James said before, find that switch and say, I'm going to believe. Yeah, James doesn't teach this. Can't hear that. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. What are you, what are you going to say? Okay, now some of you said it, but not all of you. I want 100% participation in church here tonight. Amen. What are you going to say? Amen. No, I can't say amen to that. I mean, that is absolutely deadly. De- uh, in, like in the truest sense of the word, the people, some of the people hearing this, their lives are literally in mortal danger. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a uh, Rick Warren update, and it's, wow, it's bad. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) It's 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh... Expects. Uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose-driven... Inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do... Chief ex- weapons are... Our chief weapons are, um... Purpose. Uh, uh vision Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick... Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your Bible-twisting pastor and your church, especially if they're taking God's Word and making it about you rather than preaching Christ for you. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95, that's it, every month, the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your uh, gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly, truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. And uh, now it's time to move on. And uh, we're going to be doing an extended Rick Warren update. Grab a Bible. You're going to need it. Here we go. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. Got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. All right, so that's our purpose-driven update music, and we're going to be listening to uh, a recent sermon. In fact, I think this was uh, delivered this past Sunday by Rick Warren, entitled Daring Faith, Daring to Imagine. Daring to Imagine. And this, literally, Rick Warren takes God's Word and bends it into a pretzel. Uh, He bends it into little balloon animals. But he is not rightly handling God's word, and I'm absolutely fascinated by this message because it's akin to the kind of Bible twisting that we get from somebody as inept as Terry Savelle Foy. Yeah, it's really that bad. Here's Rick Warren to explain to us daring to imagine. Here we go. All right, get out your pencils, and let's look at what I've learned about God-inspired imagination. This really could make a major difference in your life if you'll let God expand the way you think about your family, your career, your life, God, and everything else. Number one, the first thing, my imagination shapes my life. My My imagination shapes my life. You got a Bible verse for that? Imagination shapes my life. In other words, the way you think is going to affect the way you feel, and the way you feel is going to affect the way you act. And if you want to change the way you act, you need to change the way you think. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So that's Proverbs 23, 7, that popular verse used by Word of Faith heretics. And uh, and he's quoting it using the same translation that the Word of Faith heretics quote it from, and that would be the King James Version. And I'm going to note something here that uh, on screen there at Saddleback they have uh, you know the the jumbotrons, and you can see what uh, verses went up on the jumbotron this past Sunday. And it says dot 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 capital F for as a man thinketh thinketh in his heart, so is he. Is that a full sentence? Nope, it is not. So let me read it to you um, in context using 
well, let's put it this way. Let's use a good translation, the ESV. I'm not saying the King James is bad here. It's just that it's going to be a little, because of the archaic language, there's something you know, you're going to miss. So let's take a look at it using the ESV. Here's what it says in verse 6, because remember, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. Here's what it says. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And you're thinking, well, where does that passage say that, you know, my imagination is important? And it, the answer is, it doesn't. So let me read it from the King James so you can kind of see what's going on. King James Verse Proverbs 23, verse 6, here's what it says. Eat thou not the bread of a man that hath an evil eye. An evil eye is an, idi- an idiom for somebody who's stingy. Neither desire thou his dainty meats, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. So you'll notice that Proverbs 23, 7, even in the King James, when you put it back in context, is not saying that your imagination is, an, is a vital thing, because as you think or imagine in your heart, so are you. Rick Warren is out of the chute, mangling, and I mean mangling God's word. This is not some small thing. This is a huge sin. He's blaspheming here. This is what it means to take God's name in vain. It is, it is God's way of saying, I want you to understand that how, how I work in your life is through your thoughts. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. For instance, the person who says, I can't do this, and the person who says, I can't do this, are both right. Yeah, that's not what Proverbs 23, 7 is teaching at all. They're both right. Because if you think you can't, you can't. And if you think you can, you, you can. The person who says, I just can't imagine that ever happening to me. Well, guess what? It won't. It won't. This is like the word of faith heresy light. Because you're already doing a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, the Bible says this in Proverbs 4.23. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by what? Your thoughts. Circle that. Okay, Proverbs 4.23, okay? You'll, so you'll notice we're not getting anything in context, but let's take a look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. We're going to use the ESV, and uh, we're going to apply our three rules again, context, 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 because it, it works here. We'll start at verse 20, even though verse 23 is where we want to be. Here's what it says. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Hmm. See, when I read it in context using a, a, a good translation, and I, he, they didn't even put this up on the board, so I don't even, you know, on, on their jumbotrons, so I don't even know what translation he's using if it is the translation. My suspicion is, is that it's the, uh, it's the message. But one thing's for sure, Proverbs uh, 4.23 uh, does not say what he says it's saying. You know, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And what does he say? Um, you know, keep 
the words of the Proverbs in your heart is what the point is being made there. So let me back this up just a smidge so that uh, we can see what Rick Warren is doing with this text. Right. They're both right. Because if you think you can't, you can't. And if you think you can, you, you can. The first thing says, I just can't imagine that ever happening to me. Well, guess what? It won't. It won't. Because you're already doing a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, the Bible says this in Proverbs 4.23. Be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by what? Your thoughts. Circle that. Your, your thoughts. And that's not what that text says at all. Now, because I've always been interested in this, in the power of imagination, particularly as it relates to faith, I've collected quotes of famous people over the years about imagination, and I thought I would just share some of them with you. Here's the first one from Albert Einstein. Look up here on the screen. Einstein says, imagination is more important than knowledge. Logic will get you from A to B. Imagination will take you everywhere. There's no limit to your imagination. The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination, Albert Einstein. That's interesting, very interesting. Okay, here's one, George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright and poet. Imagination is the beginning of creation. You imagine what you desire, you will what you imagine, and then you create what you will. In other words, Michelangelo, when he painted the Sistine Chapel, those Beautiful frescoes. Now, is are any of these guys uh, Bernard Shaw or you know any of these guys biblical? No. Imagine it all in his mind. He had to see it in his mind before he could put it on on the wall. C.S. Lewis, the greatest Christian thinker of the last century, said, "Imagination is the organ of meaning." Napoleon Bonaparte, "Imagination rules the world." The philosopher, yeah, because everybody knows that Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, he was teaching sound biblical doctrine when he said, "Imagination rules the world." Al said, "Imagination decides everything." William Arthur Ward said, "If you can imagine it, you can achieve it, and if you can dream it, you can become it." And then that great theologian George Lucas, <laughs> "You can't do it." Unless you imagine it. Imagine him imagining all of the Star Wars trilogies. That took quite a lot of imagination. Okay, that's George Lucas, okay? Uh, and then here are a couple other uh, great leaders. Uh, Walt Disney said, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as um, there's imagination left in the world. And then this quote, Saddleback will never stop growing. <laughs> As long as there's one person who's not heard the good news of Jesus, we will keep reaching out. That's from the first sermon in 1980. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're making this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the people at Saddleback are not hearing the good news of Jesus, are they? (sighs) Imagination. Imagination. Now, God warned about the power of imagination being misused. And he tells the people in in Babel where they were building this giant tower of Babel, which was going to be uh, basically an idol. Uh, uh, They were going to build it to reach up to God. And here's what God says in Genesis 11 about imagination. The Lord said, now that they are one people speaking one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Now, nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible for them. 
Now, that's weird because he's reading from the Amplified. And so you'll notice here uh, something about Rick Warren is this, he doesn't teach from a single single translation. He's not engaging in exegesis. Instead, he goes and finds the Bible translation or paraphrase that fits what he wants to say, and then he goes and finds that and quotes from that. So, you know, we've started off with the King James, we went to the message, now we're in the Amplified. That should clue you into what's going on here. Who's really doing the speaking then from the pulpit at Saddleback? Is Christ speaking? Is God really speaking to us from his word at Saddleback? No. God has been muzzled. Rick Warren is the one who's in charge, and Rick Warren is the one who's dictating what the message is, not God's word, because he's gone out of his way to make sure that uh, that you know what's being said is not going to be from God's word, rightly understood or correctly exegeted. Now, let me read from the ESV, he, uh, Genesis eleven six. Here's what it says: And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do uh, will now be impossible for them. Uh huh. It doesn't say imagine in the ESV, and nor does it say it in the Hebrew. The uh, The Hebrew word is zamam, and uh, it means to purpose. It doesn't mean to imagine. So Rick Warren went to the Amplified so that he can find the word imagination or imagined in there in order to weave this into his tapestry of false doctrine that he is spinning out there at uh, Saddleback. We continue. Notice this is God talking. God always speaks the truth. He yeah, said, no, that's not God talking because you're using the Amplified, which is not really a good translation at all, if you can even call it a translation. You are proof texting, Rick. Because they're one people with one language, and they're unified, they've got clear communication, he said nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible for them. Uh huh. Yeah. Again, he he. So he's wait. Well, look at this is what God says. It, nothing that they imagine to do will be impossible for them. And yet, the Hebrew uh, word there, zamam, is not imagination. That Hebrew word means to propose. Let me check a couple of other translations just to kind of see what's going on here. NASB, it says this. This is what they began to do. Now, nothing which they pur- purpose to do uh, <laughs> will be. Okay, so yeah, so even, the, I mean, let's take a look at the NIV. NIV says that uh, at the uh, if as one people speaking the same language they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So Rick Warren is making a big point about, oh, well, see, this is God's word says, you know, whatever they imagine. But the Hebrew doesn't have the word imagine. It has purpose or propose or plan. Zamam. That's what the inspired author Moses wrote for us. He did not use the word imagination. So that word is not in the original text at all. Yet Rick Warren is making a big point about it. It's actually a warning. But there's also a teaching here. If you are a businessman, I want you to listen closely. How do you get a group of people to do the impossible? How do you make the impossible possible? Maybe you've got a project in your business that you go, man, there's no way this is gonna happen. How do you get people to do the impossible? Well, he says there are three things. You need cooperation, you need communication, and you need imagination. 
He said, you gotta have cooperation. They've gotta be unified, one people. You gotta have clear communication. They're speaking one language. And you've gotta have imagination. And if you... Yeah, I can tell you where this, uh, this doctrine comes from. It doesn't come from God's word. It comes from Rick Warren's... Yeah, it comes from Rick Warren's imagination. This is not what God's word teaches at all. Three, that's how the impossible becomes possible. That's a little leadership tip I just thought I'd throw in there. Now, number two, second thing I've learned about imagination. Imagining is, a simp- is essential to living by faith. Imagination is essential to living by faith. In fact, what on earth? And not live by faith without using your imagination. Because since you can't see God, you've got to use imagination to practice your faith. What? Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter of heroes of the faith. And by the way... Yeah, it's the great hall of faith passage, not the great imagination passage. If you're, you've been honored as a hero of faith, we do want you to pick up one of these pens on the way going out, the hero of faith. But in Hebrews 11, we have God's hall of fame. You know, there's a rock's... Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, God has a Hall of Fame, and it's called Hebrews chapter 11. And in the Bible, he lists all the people who are the real heroes in God's book. Abraham, Moses, and Joseph, and Gideon, and all these people. And he starts off... He- yeah, that's kind of to, to misrepresent. It's called the Great Hall of Faith passage. But it, the whole point there is that those things are written to encourage us in our faith. I've been talking about faith... By saying this in verse 1, defining faith. Let's read it aloud together. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. Now, notice two things. Faith is a way of seeing. And he says here that, that God says whatever you hope for, when you, when you believe it's going to happen, not that it might happen, that's hope. When you believe it will happen, that's faith. And- wow, this is bad. Okay, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. What is being talked about here? Imagination or faith? Answer is faith. Imagination is not coming into play. What is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is assurance. Faith is certainty in whom? And you have to put it that way. So faith is like eyesight. I say this regularly here. Faith is like eyesight. It always has an object. If you say you have faith that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series this year, that may be misguided faith but i hope it isn't but you know you know i've been saying that for years but anyway uh, <laughs> but the point is is that you know you're saying that you trust you believe in that team or you believe in your boss or you believe in this person or you believe in that politician so faith always has an object so when we talk about biblical saving faith in whom do we trust answer the 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 holy trinity the the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What are we believing for? Answer, what he has promised. 
So what has God, the Holy Trinity, promised us? Answer, he's promised us that in Christ, all of our sins, from the sins, you know, the, the sin of Adam and Eve that is imputed to us before we are born and we're conceived and born and dead in trespasses and sins, to every sin that we've committed from the time we drew our first breath to the time we breathe our last breath, every sin has been answered for and punished in Christ, and that we have a right standing before God, not by anything that we do, but we have a right standing before God because of what Christ has done for us. This is true. And we believe that he is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and we will live eternally with him forever, world without end. This is what we uh, are... we hope for, and we are confident and assured of this because of the one in whom we have faith, and that is, you know, God Himself, the Holy, you know, the Holy Trinity, or you can even, you know, narrow that down in Christ because of what He's done for us on the cross and His victorious resurrection from the grave. You can talk in those terms as well. So when we talk about faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What are we hoping for? We're hoping for right standing before God. New heavens, new earth, life eternal. Um, you know, and it's the conviction of things not seen. Do you see these things now? No. We we believe them by faith because we are believing in the one who made the promises. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We don't you know we don't believe the universe just burped and you know, showed up, you know, big bang style when you know all by an accident. No, not at all. Instead, we believe that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. In fact, we are we are made right before God by grace through faith, and even that faith is a gift given to us by God. Read Ephesians two eight nine and ten. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So you see what's going on in this text, and Rick Warren notice that this text mentions nothing, absolutely. Nothing about imagination. But Rick Warren is not going to let that get in the way. He's got an agenda, so he's going to bend God's word and mangle it and twist it to force it to say what he wants it to say, which is what he's doing right now. It's the evidence of things we cannot yet see. God gave you two ways of seeing, gave every human being two ways of seeing. First, you can see through your physical eyes. That's one way of seeing. And second, you can see by the imagination in your mind. And you can picture things in your mind. And you This can- text doesn't say anything about seeing things by faith. It says believing. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Yeah, so... He's taking the word seen and he's totally mis- misrepresenting what this what it's saying in this text. It's not saying what he's saying it's saying at all. It's not saying there's two ways of seeing, one with your physical eyes and the other with the eyes of faith. That's not exactly what's going on. We believe 
that the we by faith we understand that the word that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was see what is seen that's what you can see with your eyes was not made out of the things that are visible in other words verse 3 is talking about the ex nihilo creation wow this is awful of course you dream them but you can visualize them and that's another way of seeing and when you can't see something physically you have to imagine it in your mind now it says here that faith is when we hope for something and we know it's going to happen in order to hope for something you have to picture it in your mind do you remember when you were a kid and at christmas time there are gifts wrapped under the uh the christmas tree and you started you saw the ones with your name on it and you started imagining what was inside that box and you got excited because you thought you knew what was inside that box because you were picturing it in your mind. You could not see it, but you are imagining that gift. You are imagining that toy. And this is a tool that God says you have to use in walking on with Christ because you can't see God. So when you can't see God right now, you have to imagine God has given us tools of imagination. Communion, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Those, both of those symbols engage your imagination. And no text ever in Scripture talking about baptism or the Lord's Supper talk about the importance of our imagination when, in regards to them. They help us visualize, they help us picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ going under the water, coming back out, is a picture of Jesus dying and being buried and rising again. And communion is a picture of Jesus giving his body and blood for your salvation. They are tools that engage your imagination. Now, when you read the rest of Hebrews 11 about all those heroes of faith, you realize that every one of them became heroes of faith because they used their imagination. (sighs) And there isn't a single mention of imagination in Hebrews chapter 11. Although, I did a little word search. You know that... uh, uh, the word imagination does show up a few times in scripture yeah um <laughs> yeah let me uh let me give you some of the passages isaiah chapter 65 verse 2 god saying all day long i've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good pursuing their own imaginations mm-hmm. ezekiel Chapter 13, verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those prophets who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. Or Ezekiel 13, verse 17. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them, says the Lord. Or Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Yeah, see, that's kind of the weird thing when you do the biblical work on here and you look up the word imagination and you look it up in good translations, never is imagination trumpeted as a good thing. Thing, yes, and in nowhere is it even mentioned once in Hebrews chapter eleven. Weird indeed. God says to Abraham, Abraham, uh, you're ninety years old and you have no kids, but I'm going to change your name to Abram from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a great nation. Now, for about a 
a decade, Abraham still has no kids. And so he goes to a local restaurant. He said, party for two, you know, table for two. What's your name? Uh, Father of a great nation. Oh, wow, that's neat. How many kids you got? None. It'd be pretty embarrassing to be named Father of a great nation and you don't have any kids. But God always calls things that are not as though they were. He names it in advance. You see, it's not about Abram's imagination. It's about Abraham believing God's word and his promise. In fact, that's what uh, Genesis 15 says. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not that he imagined that what God said or exercised his imagination. No, he believed God. Wow, this is... ah. And then he says, I want you to go outside, Abraham. And he said, I want you to count the stars at night. And he said, that's how many grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grand. How many are you going to have in your family tree? That's going to be the nation of Israel. That's going to be how many Jews there are in the world. Count all the stars. What is God doing when he tells Abraham to go count the stars? He is activating his imagination. And again, again, I'll just reiterate this. There is not a single biblical passage that says anything of the sort. This is just a total mangling twisting and manipulating of God's word to teach a doctrine that is not taught in scripture anywhere. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Contestant number five in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. It's a slippery one. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. 
Hour number two and time for contestant number five for this year's 2015 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Just a reminder, wagering is <laughs> is not, well, it's not indica- It's not recommended. If you're going to be wagering on this, I strongly recommend that you don't. By the year, by the way, every year I've gotten it wrong. So just so you know. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service contestant number five in the 2015 worst easter sermon of the year contest is jim virgin of flat irons community church lafayette colorado the uh, sermon we'll be listening to is from the series entitled bloodline and the name of the sermon is entitled rethinking your strategy for life now listen carefully when i tell you that's the point that he's trying to make Whatever he's talking, telling you about Jesus, he's trying to tell you you need to emulate what Jesus did, similarly to the way we heard um, Phil Pringle talking. You know, that apparently there, there's, a, there's a strategy here. You've got to find your strategy for life and stick to your code the way Jesus stuck to his code. And it is a total botching of the story of Jesus. And he says some pretty outrageous things along the way, which we'll debunk. Um, when we get there. In fact, one of the things he says is about Ruth and Boaz, and that he kind of forwards on a popular false understanding about Ruth um, and, uh, and Boaz that we'll correct here in a minute. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Jim Burgeon and his uh, Easter sermon entitled Rethinking Your Strategy for Life. Here we go. All I know is I, I want those yellow pants. I look good in those. Yeah, it's awesome. Hey, I'm pretty sure we're the only church in the whole country that did that song for Easter. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> a little AWOL, a little Kendrick in there. It's awesome. It's so good. Oh, I need a nap. That's awesome. All right, so, so some of you have never been to church before. You're going, this is your church? Really? Yeah. This counts. This counts. All right, so... Um, Hey, hey, let me jump in. So over the last month in here, we've been working our way through part of the, the family tree, the bloodline of Jesus, all right? And, and, and as, as we've been doing that, and also as we've gotten closer to, to Easter weekend, um, we, which a lot of times is family time, all right? So, so uh, he, and that's, that, this is what's going to happen to me later today. So I'm going to have the whole family over, and, and we're going to eat a meal, and we're going to have an Easter egg hunt and stuff like that. And, 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 but as I've worked through Jesus' family and, and kind of looked at families, my family, everybody's family, stuff like that, here's kind of an aha moment that's really kind of hit me over the last week, and it goes like this. Everybody's got family, like it or not, right? I mean, everybody has family. Everybody comes from somewhere. Everybody has a family. And here's what I've known about everybody's family, my family, your family. It's, we all have this. We all have a few skeletons in the closet, don't we? We all got some stuff that was like we'd rather not talk about, right? We, we all have people in our, in our, in, in our, in our, in our towns, you know, that, that we just don't talk about at dinner, right? Or, or when we talk about them, we whisper their name. You know about Steve, you know? That's just, you, just don't, you just don't tell. If your name's Steve, I made that up. But anyway, so, so here's... But, but here's, here's what's going to happen. Maybe later today, maybe Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever it is, all right, when everybody gets here. But you're going to invite everybody, all right? You're, you invite them over for holidays, then you don't have to see them until the next holiday. But anyway, but you invite everybody over, but you really hope that not everybody comes. 
right? He's like, everybody's going, but please don't let her come this year. All right, so anyway, so here's what's going to happen later today, all right, for some of us. You're going to sit down to, to dinner, and then someone's going to look out the window and go, oh, crap, they came. You're going to go, oh, no, did you invite her? No. I, do we have to let her in? Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Let her in. All right, so... Um, so, so, so you're going to do it. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to open the door and you're going to fake it. You're going to look at him or her and go, ah, so, so good to see you. I, I didn't know you were out of prison. That's great. Come, <laughs> come on in here. I wish, I mean, I thought you were dead. So come on, all right? That's great. Have some ham. But my, my, my point is, all right, and, and I, I think I've hit some nerves here. Just look straight ahead. Don't look at anybody, all right? But every family has somebody in their family that we wish they weren't in our family, right? That's just, every, everybody has secrets, Everybody, again, don't, don't look at point at anybody and don't, don't say their name out loud, but every family has a crazy cousin or uncle that you, that you just don't want them around your kids, all right? I mean, everybody has a black sheep. Everybody, you know, what happened to them? Or nobody talks about them anymore. Everybody, every family is the same, including the family of Jesus. The more I've, I've studied in Jesus' family, just like my family and your family. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible. Again, I don't know how much time you spend reading the Bible, but a couple of reasons I love the Bible. First of all, it just doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to, to hide or sanitize any of the messiness of Jesus' family. I mean, his whole family tree is just laid out there for everybody to see. And I've read through it and read the stories of all the so-and-so had a baby and they had a baby and they better be all that to Jesus, right? And, and as you look at some of the characters in his family tree, there's some really great people in there. I mean, fantastic, super spiritual, deep stories, all right? But there's, some all, there's also some people in Jesus' family tree that I bet whenever, whenever Jesus' family got together, I don't know, for 4th of July or whatever they call it, you know, whatever, you know, I bet we just didn't talk about them. Like if you were to go through, I'll, I'll just give you some highlights. Here's some highlights from Jesus' family tree. You'd find stuff like this, all right? Like one of his great, great, I don't know, like 16 great grandmothers, all right? Here's her story. She got married, but then her husband died before she could have a baby. She really wanted a baby, so in desperation, she, she dresses herself up like a prostitute, gets her father-in-law drunk and sleeps with him, ugh, gets pregnant, and then blackmails him when he tries to have her killed for being a prostitute till the paternity test comes back. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Now, this is the story of Judah and Tamar. Right? That's exactly Jesus. I'm Jerry Springer. Awesome. All right? So good. All right? So, so or how about this? All right? Last week, we looked at this. If you weren't here, you got to get online and watch this. But we, we, we studied the story of a, of a man named Boaz, who's a relative of Jesus several hundred years ago. But Now, real quick, you've probably heard this. If you haven't, then you're going to be shocked. There is a false teaching, and I mean this. It is slanderous what is being said about Ruth and Boaz. Let me point it out to you first from the text, and uh, that way you can kind of hear it from me. But Jim Burgeon has his facts wrong on this, and it's one of those things where he probably heard this from somebody he respects and and is passing it along but hasn't actually fact-checked. This happens to me from time to time, by the way. Sometimes I'm taught something by somebody I respect, and then I pass along something that is, that is not historically accurate. So, you know, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on this and basically say he didn't do his research properly. But uh, here's how the saying goes, um, that there, that, you know, in Ruth chapter 3, when it says that Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet, that that's a Hebrew euphemism for wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That means she was offering herself to him um, and, you know, and that they had sexual relations. That is not true. And the text itself is actually really easy to, to see this. So let's take a look at Ruth chapter 3. And uh, we're going to start 
Uh, we're going to start at Ruth chapter three, verse one. You know, so you know things have developed in the relationship, and uh, and so here here we go. Ruth chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore, anoint yourself." Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, keep in mind, okay, if this idea of uncovering his feet means sexual relations, then Naomi is basically telling her daughter-in-law, hey, go and be a skanky hoe. And that's not what's going on at all. There is a Hebrew euphemism that talks about uncovering, and it's referring to a sexual relations. And the, the euphemism is uncovering someone's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother. These are, That's the euphemism. But uncovering someone's feet, that is not a Hebrew euphemism that is talking about sexual relations. So we've got a real problem here because now we've got Naomi basically saying, go and throw yourself at him and you know, hook him using sex. And that's not what she's saying. And I'll show you it from the text because it's very easy to see. So here's what it says, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, if this, if, <laughs> she, if this were her having sex with him, it would say, and then she lay down and uncover his feet. That's technically how that would work. You know, just kind of work it out in your mind. Use your imagination, if you would. But notice here, this uncovering his feet, this is referring to an actual place. And you can tell from the text. Watch. So at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You see? <laughs> See, uncovering his feet means uncover his feet. The idea was to make his legs cold so that he would have to wake up and figure out why he was freezing. And then there and then behold, laying at his feet, there was a woman. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's a great story. And so by saying what he's about to say, He's passing along something that is patently false. And I know there are a lot of pastors out there who've heard this from somebody they respect and they're passing it along, but it's not true. It is not true that Ruth (laughs) threw herself and had sex with Boaz prior to them being married and all because he, quote unquote, uh, she uncovered his feet. That is not a euphemism for sex. And the text itself, if you just pay attention to what's going on there, you can even see it in English. Laying at his feet means, well, uncovering his feet and then laying at his feet means that she uh, took the blanket off his feet and lay at his feet and waited for him to wake up. That's what's going on in this text. What you're going to hear Jim Burgeon say is not true. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who believe that this is what's going on in this text and it's patently false and they need to knock this off. His mom was known as the prostitute of Jericho. Not, not a, 
Not the, she's, she was a prostitute. No, she's the, like the big, the most, the best one, all right? She was a prostitute of Jericho. That's my mom, all right? So, so here's the story of Boaz, all right? So Boaz, he grows up, he's a single guy. He's had a few drinks, all right? It's, it's the end of harvest. He, he actually kind of wakes up in a barn, all right? And, and when he wakes up, his pants have been pulled down. There's a girl named Ruth offering herself right there on the floor. You want to have sex with me? Right here on the floor, okay? That's in the Bible, that's in the Bible. I, listen, I've been to church all my life. I never sang a song in Sunday school about that. One- yeah, that's because that's not what's happening there. One time. <laughs> oh, Ruth went through the barn. No, no. We, no, and if I would have suggested my grandma would have washed my mouth, that was soap. We don't talk about Ruth, right? So we just don't, all right? So, and if you go a few more generations, here's, here's a famous story. It's in Jesus' family tree. You find this guy named David, King David, who's in a really bad marriage. He got off to a bad start. He won her in a contest. That's not a good basis for a relationship. But anyway, it's not going well. And honestly, if you study about her, you know, she was a real, not, she was a, there, she was a bad woman. Anyway, and but, but, see, I reeled it in there, right, because there's kids in the room. But anyway, that, in his loneliness, all right, one night he peeps out the window, peeps in a, in a neighbor's window, and there's a woman in there. She's beautiful, and she's taking a bath, and he's like, I like that. So he hooks up with her, and then he gets her pregnant, and then he has her husband killed to try to cover everything up. And then she has a baby, but the baby dies, but then they go and have other children, one of which later rapes his own sister. That's in his, you, you won't find that picture on any coffee mug at the Bible bookstore. You won't. They won't even order it for you. I ask. You know, say, no, we don't talk about that. All right? It's just not. No. Hey, hey, time out. Is everybody feeling better about your family? It's like, oh, good. Well, grandma never did that. Well, as far as you know. Right? So <laughs> here's my point. I got a point. Uh, here's my point. All right? Because while Jesus was awesome and Jesus was perfect, his family was a mess it was just a mess. But, but here's the other thing. that While Jesus' family is filled with imperfect people, like our families are filled with imperfect people, right? There's also this common thread or this theme that's found running through the bloodline of Jesus, and it goes like this. When, not if, but when, many of the people in Jesus' family were faced with the decision about what am I gonna do? Should I do this or should I do that? Even if it was after they had made this huge mistake that had the potential to totally blow up their lives and everybody around them's lives, all right? Something happens. Something happens that reminds them of this. Oh yeah, this is who God is. And this is what God said was true. And this is what he promised me. And then somewhere in their life, they, and the Bible word for this is, they repented or they reconsidered, or here's what we're gonna call it today. They rethought their strategy for life. Okay, now this is an important piece. And I told you this was gonna be a slick sermon. I mean, it's, repenting does not mean rethinking your strategy for life. That is not what metanoia means. That is not what repentance means. It does mean to change your mind, but it doesn't mean rethinking your quote-unquote strategy for life. And this is where this sermon goes off the rails and becomes a very dangerous sermon because he's messing with the definitions of important words. And the, you know, so the word repent does not mean rethinking your strategy for life. And at this point, it's really from this point forward, He's going to be working with a different set of definitions. Even though you are hearing biblical words, they have different meanings. And by the way, this is exactly the technique used by the, uh, all major cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, mind science cults. They all use biblical words, but they have different meanings. And so what Jim Burgeon is doing here is very, very dangerous. Based on who God is and what God said was true. If that's true, maybe I should rethink my life. For example, if you go back to that, that David story, the king that had the affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered to have it covered up, all right? When he was confronted with, this is what you've done, and he was reminded of, and this is who God is, 
This is who you are to God, all right? He was not reminded of any of those things. He was confronted with his sin, and he repented. And read Psalm 51, and you'll kind of get the idea. Against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart. You know, purge me with hyssop. I mean, just read Psalm 51. This is very dangerous because although you're going to hear a lot of Bible, you're not going to hear a lot of Bible according to what it really means. This is, wow. This is what God promised. David's immediate response was, you're right, I did it. I did it. I did it. I admit it. No excuses. My fault. I have made a huge mistake. And I've sinned not just against this, this, this woman, all right, but I sinned against God. And from this point on, I have to rethink my strategy for how I'm going to live my life. <laughs> from now on, I need to rethink my strategy for how I'm going to live my life. That is, that, that is not part of the story of David's sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Wow. From this point on, time out, because that's all you have. You can't rethink your strategy for the past. It's done, all right? All we have is from this point on. And David goes, from this point on, i got to rethink my life based on a reality that I forgot, which goes like this. This is who God is, and this is what he says is true, and this is who I am to God. I forgot, and on the spot, God forgave him. And what kind of man does that make David? What kind of man was David? Well, the, the, in the Bible, God calls David, he's a man after my own heart. You mean, but that was before all this bad stuff happened, right? No, no. God never changed his mind about David. Even after the affair and murder and all that kind of stuff, God still referred to David, that's a man after my own heart. Hold on to that. See, throughout this entire series, or really anytime you crack open a Bible and you start reading the stories of the people that you find on those pages, the most important question to ask is not, what did they do? What did they do right or what did they do wrong? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. It's not the most important one. The most important question to ask is, what was it about him or her, that, that person in the story, or what was going on in their lives that caused them to do that? They're all sinners. See, the, 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 listen, you're not a sinner because you sin. Nope. You sin because you are a sinner. Sin is first and foremost a condition. It is a corruption of our nature. This is why Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, makes it clear that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We follow the, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, follow our sinful nature and its sinful desires, and the world. And we are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. But it is God who makes us alive. So, when we, when we sin, we show that we have the condition of being a corrupted sinner. That's why we sin. So you cannot think about sin in a way where you basically say, sinning makes me a sinner. No, you sin because you are a sinner, because you are sinful and you are corrupted. And even though you are alive in Christ, you still have your old sinful Adam to contend with, until you go to your grave. So we this this is falling short on a lot of a lot of doctrines here, but we got oh man, we continue. That cause them to say, I'm gonna do that or or not do that. In other words, here's the question we've been looking at over and over. What kind of man or woman does that kind of thing? What kind of man would choose to do that? What kind of woman would choose not, not to do that, all right? And see, see, Jesus said several times, and again, whether you believe in God or not, you believe this is true. You agree with Jesus on this. It goes like this. Jesus says that whatever a person does on the outside in their life is simply an overflow of what's going on inside. 
right? You, you would agree with that, I think. What, what, what's going on in their heart? What, what's, what, what, what kind of person they are? Because out of that comes life. That's why I did this, or that's why I said no, no to that, all right? So, like, well, I, I'll give you... Right. Sin begins inside of us and then manifests in behaviors, which is why we sin against God in thought, word, and deed, by what we do and by what we don't do. We continue. Give you an example. One time, some religious people called Jesus into a meeting. They brought him into a meeting because they wanted to know what his opinion or his belief was about, you ready, the sin of not washing your hands before a meal. Can you believe it? There was actually a meeting, an entire meeting on how God feels about dirty hands. And you got to think Jesus' blood pressure goes up a tick or two every once in a while, right? Like he rolls his eyes like, serious, this is what the meeting's about? But he, but he, but he keeps calm. He stays. Now, his, notice he's not actually reading from a text. This, isn't, this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. So he, already he's described this wrong, and we've got kind of an interesting problem. Let's take a look at what's going on in the passage. Mark 7 will suffice for this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, in other words, the religious leaders sent an entourage to basically check out Jesus to see who this guy is and whether or not he's on the level, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Why is this the issue for the Pharisees? The the real the answer is simple because the the Pharisees their um their formal principle they had two uh, sources of authority, the written Torah and the oral Torah, otherwise known as the tradition of the elders, and they claim that the oral Torah was just as every bit as authoritative and the word of God as the written Torah. And the commandment regarding washing your hands, it's not found in uh, the written Torah. It's found in this tradition of the elders. So this is you need to understand this historically. So the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, Mark tells us. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribe to ask, ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Notice, why aren't you following the oral Torah? But they eat with defiled hands. So this is a question about the authoritativeness of this oral tradition. So he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, Jesus says that oral Torah is not authoritative at all. You are teaching the commandments of men through it. So you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition." that you have handed down, and many such things you do. In other words, he's saying, you are making void the written word of God, which is truly the word of God, and this oral tradition that you guys have, that is not the word of God, and you're making it void through your traditions. So he called the people to him again, and he said, Now hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person by going into him that can defile him. So now Jesus is going to drive a stake even deeper and basically show the absurdity of the doctrine from the tradition of the elders that he's repudiated. 
Okay, There's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters into his heart, and but his stomach, and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they are what defiles a person. Jesus here is literally making reference to our sinful nature. Now cross-reference that with Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, verse 1, "...and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world." following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jesus is talking about man's sinful condition and how that condition then is what gives birth to sinful behavior and actions. But the sin starts not with the action, it begins from within, showing the corruption of our nature. We continue. He's calm, all right, but it, but, but it lays on the sarcasm. Which is, I love Jesus. When you think about Jesus, you think, oh, he's good, and he's kind, and he's holy. He is, but he's also sarcastic, which is why I love him, one of the reasons. All right, so in the middle of this whole hand-washing meeting, here's what he looks at him finally and just stops the meeting and goes, are you still so dull? I love that. He didn't go, bless your heart. I know, no, no. Are you still so dull? All right, Jesus asked him, he said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? And whoever translated this verse in my Bible into English cleaned it up, all right? Because I went back to the original language and this is how it literally translates. It goes like this. This is Jesus saying, he says, he says don't you see, or come on, you gotta see this. You know this is true, that whatever goes into the mouth, follow along, goes into the stomach and then it translates and then into the toilet. It's like Jesus is looking at these people going, you know how it works. Do the math here, right? And everybody in that meeting is going, well, that's true. That, that's got a point. It's happened to me twice today. It's not even lunchtime, all right? That's, that's, that's just true, all right? What's your point, Jesus, all right? What, 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 where are you going with this? Verse 18, Jesus keeps on going. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from where? The heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, which all lead to this. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. It all came out of here, right? These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. So you agree with this, right? I think most of us do. Everything that we choose to do or not, not do can always be traced back to what's going on inside a person, revealing their, their heart or revealing what kind of person that she or he is, really, right? If you remember this, we've been looking at this every, every week over the last month. Circums yeah, see, the problem is the purpose of the law is to show us that we are all sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. That includes me, and that includes you. We've got a big problem with this theology here. Circumstances don't build character. Circumstances reveal character. And see, again, see, we're, we're smart. We're, we're really good at this, right? Every one of us in this room, we can fake it for a while. We can put on a happy Easter face. Come on in and eat lunch with us. We, we can put that on for a while, but eventually something will happen in our life or somebody else's life, and it's hard enough or painful enough or tough enough, and then you're gonna respond or they're gonna respond. And if everybody's paying attention, eventually everybody's gonna see, oh, there you are. Now I know. 
Right. And what does that reveal? That all of us are sinners. So what's the solution? Repentance, to repent, to change your mind. You're not a good person. Believe what God says about you. You are a sinner. And now understand you have nothing to offer God. So trust Christ alone and what he's done for you by his vicarious death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be forgiven. See if he gets there. Now I know what kind of man you are. Now I know what kind of man I married. Now I know what kind of dad you are, mom you are. What a, now I know what kind of person you really are. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time today, all right, on Easter. I want, I want to look at two stories from Jesus' life, two really hard circumstances that he goes through where the heat is turned up, and we will, we'll be able to see not only what kind of man Jesus was and still is right now, but what he held on to. What Jesus believed was true. What was Jesus' strategy for life that made being the kind of man that he is made it possible for him to do and not do the things that he did and didn't do? So, two... so notice, so apparently it was Jesus' strategy for life that made it possible for him to do the things he did and didn't do. And so if you just have, adopt the same strategy for life for you, you'll be able to do the things that Jesus did and didn't do. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. You still have a sinful flesh. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God that, you know, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This theology here is going to fall really flat. Story. So let me set up the first one, all right? So, so you know the answer to this. Jesus was born in, see, Christmas, Easter. You've been here. You get it. All right, so... Jesus was born in this little, this little, tiny little town called Bethlehem, but he was raised in a little village called Nazareth. His whole clan, his whole relatives all made up this, this little, little town in the middle of nowhere. He spends his first 30 years not going to Bible college or, or seminary or something like that, but he spends the first 30 years of his life working for and with his family business. He's a carpenter. He works construction until he's 30 years old, all right? At 30, probably when his younger brothers are now old enough to kind of take over the business, Jesus walks down to the Jordan River, and his cousin, John, John the, the baptizer, right? He's down there, and so John baptizes Jesus, okay? So story number one, that's all set up. Day one of Jesus's life as, as an adult man out there on his own, running his own life. Got it? That's, that's the setup. So here we go. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up, up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well Please, so, so day one of Jesus' life as, as a man goes like this. He gets baptized by his cousin, John. The heavens open. Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and a voice from out of heaven. And literally that translates out of thin air, out, out of the atmosphere, out, out of nowhere of this voice comes, right? And everybody there on the riverbank can hear this. And the voice says, this is my son and I love him and I am proud of him right now before he does anything that he's about to do. I love him right now. Now, that's a good day, right? That's a good first day at work, all right? I mean, I just... Now, here comes the bizarre psychological interpretation of this. That's, that's, that's just a, a good day. Just file this away. You can write this down if you want. But if a bird sits on your shoulder and you hear God say, you're my child, I love you, and I'm proud of you, that's a, first, that's a good first day, right? Anybody have that kind of day so far? That's better, okay? So, so Jesus has a great day. So what comes next, all right? Well, next chapter, day two. Here we go. Matthew chapter four, verse one. 
when Jesus, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, so, so we gotta look at this. What's really going on? Here's the second question. How would I feel if I was there? If I was in the same situation, all right? How would I feel if I was there in the same situation? What are you talking about? This is not about me or you or our feelings. This is telling us about the one, the one who actually was sinless, who did not sin, who who went toe-to-toe with the devil and never was defeated by the devil. I mean, how would I feel? I have no way of of putting myself into Jesus' shoes because he's sinless and I am sinful. So yesterday, day one, went great. That was a good day, all right? So now, day two, Jesus is out in the desert. There's no food. There's no voice. It's just hot. Why? Because it's a desert. Keep up, all right? It's just, right, right? But, but, but I'll bet, and I'm just making this part up, but this is what I would do if I, I'd been out there, okay? I bet maybe Jesus found a little bit of shade under a tree, and he's just sitting under that tree thinking, you know, yesterday was awesome. Yesterday just went so well, and today... So now we're just psychologically putting thoughts into Jesus' mind that the texts don't reveal at all. And by the way, this is an important part of the point he's making. This is wild psychological speculation. This is what we call psychogesis. Eisegesis means to read something into the text, psycho and psychological. So this is a psychological reading into the text, stuff that is not there. You know, maybe tomorrow is just going to be great, all right? So, so let, can't wait to see, wait for tomorrow. So tomorrow, day three, here's how it happens. More desert, no food, no voice out of heaven. Keeps going like this, all right? Week one ends. I'm hot. I'm feeling pretty hungry now, and no voice from the heavens. It's week two. I'm still hot. I'm really hungry. And hello? No, no voice from God or anybody else, all right? That's week two. Week three, it's the same. Week four, it's the same. Now, again, time out. What's really going on, and how would you feel out there in the desert? Right? Because you're, I'm off to an awesome start. Happened about a month ago, and since that, that day, Nada, nothing. You're hungry, you're weak, and nobody's talking. You know, this is no biology here, right? After a month, physically, your body's breaking down. You're in starvation mode. Your organs are, are actually shutting down, and death, you know, after four weeks becomes imminent, all right? And I, if, if I'm out in the desert, I promise, if God sends a dove today, I'm probably gonna eat it, all right? <laughs> Pull, bam, all right? I mean, dove for dinner. That's just, don't, don't email me on that. I don't care, all right? So, so... That's just true. Now, now, that's probably blasphemy, so pray for me. But, but week four goes by, and then week five goes by. And you've seen those survival shows, right? Naked and Afraid, awesome. All right, right, right. I mean, after 21 days, those whiners, they can't even move, right? Oh, I hurt. I can't, I can't walk to the airplane, right? So, but just think, imagine how you feel after being alone in a desert, no food, no nothing, for 40 days. Just silence. And here's, I think, one of the biggest understatements in the whole Bible, verse two. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you think? Thanks for throwing that in there, Matthew, all right? And, and, and then, then finally, though, finally, here comes the voice. Here comes the voice, right? Verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So almost six weeks after the big, this is my son and I love him and I'm proud of him, send off, followed by 40 days of absolutely nothing but heat, hunger, and silence, There's a voice, but it's not the voice of his loving father. 
right? It's the voice of temptation, right? And Satan shows up, and obviously he's concerned about the state that, that Jesus is in, and he's actually questioning why God, your father, who says he loves you, would treat his son like this. That is Jesus, if God really is your father. Are you really the son of God? And there's just got to read between the lines here, right? Because if you are, you know, if you were my son. So he's doing a lot of that, reading between the lines. He's not exegeting the biblical text. He's exegeting the, the lines between the lines that you can't see. But he apparently has some kind of clairvoyance to be able to see these lines. And I wouldn't do this to you. I, I wouldn't, you know, tell you I love you and tell you I, I'll take care of you. I'm proud of you. And I, and then leave you out here in the desert like this. So, son of God, go ahead. If your father's not going to take good care of you, if God's not going to take good care of you, how about this? Save yourself. Save, fix, fix your own problem. You could save yourself from this painful hunger. Just create some food if you're the son of God. Right? Verse 4. But, he, but Jesus answered, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the temptation. Hey, Jesus, save your own life. You can't count on God. Save your own life. Make this whole painful experience stop. Give in to your physical needs and, and, and feed your body what it's screaming for. You need to eat. Do this. Do this. Save yourself. It all gets better. Just make some bread. You can do this if you're the son of God. And Jesus' response my status in life, my status with my father is not defined by, determined by how I feel right now. What are you reading from? That is not what this text says. So you'll notice he's not reading the text. He's not exegeting the text. He's just giving us his psychological analysis of it and inserting into this text a theology and words and ideas that are not even there. And I'm hungry, I'll admit it. My, but my life is defined by what my father has already said about me. What he said is true and what he has promised. And I'm going to stick with the last thing I heard my father say, which was, I am his son. And he does love me and he's well pleased and he's proud of me and he will take care of me right here in this moment. So you might as well leave me alone. But he doesn't. Verse 5. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It's the tallest building in town. And he said to him, if you really are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now, time out here, all right? Let me just interrupt this, all right? Satan should have just quit after the first one, right? Because Jesus has already said everything that needs to be said. Satan, you're not paying attention. Write, write this down. I already told you. I know who I am. That's not even up for debate. I, I, I know who I am, and I know who, who my father is, and I know who I am to my father. So you might as well get... Now, this is an important thing. When Satan says, if you are the son of God, what is he trying to cast doubt on? Who Jesus is or what God said? This is an important distinction because you think, think back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, what did the devil do? Did God really say? The devil causes you to doubt what God has said. The word of God has come directly to Jesus in his baptism. You are my you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the day, Satan comes along, and Satan is not trying to get Jesus to doubt himself. Satan is causing, trying to get Jesus, tempting him to doubt what God said, to doubt the word of God. It is a subtle nuance, but it makes the difference in the whole world in rightly understanding this text because Jim Burgeon ultimately is reading us into this text and seeing in here, this is some kind of pattern. Now you need to, you need to believe who you are. 
No, no, no. Satan is trying to cast doubt on what God said. Satan always tries to get you to doubt God's word. Give up, but, but Satan doesn't quit. He never does, does he? He just comes back over and over and over and over again. So this time, hey, Jesus, prove it. Prove you're the son of God. Throw yourself off the roof. And, and, and then, I love this, Satan actually quotes the Bible to Jesus. That never goes well for anyone. Right? Hey, Jesus, did you, you ever heard of this verse? Yeah, I wrote it. All right? So, but, but, but the Satan's going to throw the Bible in Jesus' face. He says this. Throw yourself off the roof. And here's why. He, God, will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up. They'll catch you lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, so again, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, and I don't, I'm not sure you are, but if you are, I'm sure God made you some promises. Maybe he's giving you some superpowers or abilities or miracles, whatever you want to do. So prove it. Prove it, you know, test God's love for you. Jump off the roof, do some tricks. Prove you're the son of God and, and I'll leave you alone if you can prove it. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, no, no that's not how I run my life. That's not how I'm gonna run my life. I am not gonna do this. I'm not gonna intentionally run away from God and then test him to see if he'll keep coming after me and rescuing me. That's not, that's not my plan for my life. Here's my plan. I'm going to keep on taking... Yeah, Jesus didn't say or think any of these things. ...steps toward God and what God tells me to do and believe that he will take care of me wherever those steps take, take me. File that away. It's really, really important. Verse 8. And again, because the devil's not done. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. So again, one more time. Hey, Jesus, do you see all this? You see all this stuff in the world? See what's happening right, right here? I run it. It's mine. Satan, do you not see the fact that Satan wants to be worshiped as if he is God? Wow. I, I'm in charge. Do you know how powerful that makes me? Do you know who I am? Because I can make your problems go away like that. I can fix your, your, your painful circumstances. I have the power to save you right now. Just ask. Just ask, and I'll take care of you. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And from that point on, Jesus spends the next three years of his life living his life by a code, by a very specific strategy. What? So from then on, he lived his life by a code. Jesus lived, the, lived his life under the law and lived it perfectly. If you want to talk about Jesus living his life by a code, look at the Mosaic Covenant. Oh, man. I mean, I don't know where he's getting this stuff. I mean, he's just literally making theology up, kind of Rick Warren style, kind of similar to what we heard Phil Pringle do. Based on this, who is God and what, what did he promise to me? And it goes like this. God is my father. He loves me. He will take care of me no matter what happens. He is with me. God is, what's the word? He's right here. He's right here. Yeah, and where are you getting this from? Because it's not in these texts. And the number one message that came out of Jesus' mouth for the next three years was not, he didn't walk around going, you're a bad person and you're doing it wrong and you're going to hell and you better knock it off. And then you know, boxes and lines saying, you're the good people and you're the bad people. No, the number one message that came out of Jesus' mouth, he said, I'm here to give you some good news. He said, repent. That's, Jesus was a preacher of repentance. Read your New Testament. 
I, I got something better for you, all right? And it goes like this. Now pay attention, all right? Because you need to rethink your strategy for your life. So Jesus was traipsing around the Judean countryside saying, you all need to rethink your strategy for life and live like by the code that I'm living my life by. Where is he getting any of this? You need to rethink how you're going to live your life because God's kingdom is near and is available to you right now. If that's true, you might want to rethink your life. Right? And the message from Jesus was this, and still is this today. Your life could be very different if you'll believe the same things that Jesus believed about God. Like, what? <laughs> Your life could be so different if you just believe the same things that Jesus believed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, wow, wow. Like what? That God is your father. God is your father. And that in spite of all of our sins and mistakes, God doesn't hate us. People have said that. Other churches have said that. They're just wrong. Yeah, well, see, the thing is, is that those who do not believe, they're still under the wrath of God. Have you read John chapter 3? <sighs> or I just read Ephesians 2. You're objects of God's wrath. Yeah, we go from being under the dominion of Satan when God makes us alive in Christ, when we hear the gospel. Wrong, right? God doesn't hate you. He loves you. Jesus said this. He loves you like he loves Jesus. That's what Jesus said. And God doesn't, God, God will never leave you. God is near. He's right here and he's available to you. Jesus says, this is why I'm here. Jesus sent me, his son, to take care of you, to save you, to protect you, to, to connect you back to God, to bring you into God's kingdom and his family. So here's what Jesus said over and over. Just trust me. Trust me. Trust me. God loves you. And he's here and he's your father and he's available to anybody who will believe. If that's true, you might want to rethink your plan. Yeah, I the, the again, it sounds truthy, but I mean it's way way off. Your code, your strategy for life and who you are and who you are to God. Now this is really really important. Really really important. We've we've hammered this every week for the last month, okay? Cuz it'll just change everything if we actually kind of get this into our heads and hearts. Jesus did not come to try to get you to be nicer to one another. His primary mission is that, can we get along, buy, buy each other a Coke, sing Kumbaya on a circle? That's not why Jesus came, so that we can all change what we're doing and do nicer things, all right? Jesus didn't come to change what you do. He came to change who you are. Who you are, to change what kind of man or woman that you are. And here's why. Because whatever you do in life flows out of the kind of person that you are, Right? Yeah, you're either dead in trespasses and sins or you are alive in Christ. If that's what you're talking about, which is not what you're talking about, then I would agree. You see, take a look again at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at the categories of dead and alive and living and walking out your life either according to being dead in trespasses and sins and under the power of the devil or being alive in Christ and, and doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do that we should walk, conduct our lives in them. If you're talking about dead versus alive in Christ, then you'd have a point, but that's not what you're talking about. And knowing that God is your father and that he doesn't hate you, that he actually loves you and he's right here available to you, that can change a person. In Notice he's not calling people to repent and to be forgiven, which is a problem. And that's how Jesus ran his life. That was his code. It was a strategy for life that saw him through everything that was about to happen. What was that? Well, that's story number two. So skip ahead to story number two. We're going to be uh, three years later in, in the life of Jesus. 
It's the last few days leading up to, to the cross, a few days before Easter Sunday morning. Now, time out there, okay? We hear Easter, and we know what it means, all right? They hadn't heard about Easter. Oh, that's true. He's so deep, right, right? Why? Because it hadn't happened. You know, we as Christians, sometimes we get so condescending, all right, because we have the luxury of looking back on the events. We read the Bible. We were here last, last year. We, we know how it works out. Jesus is crucified on the cross. He's buried in a hole. And three days later, he comes back to life, all right? We know how this turns out. But, but go back. Put yourself in that situation. Put yourself in the story, in that moment. How would you feel? All right, so I'll give you this. God has told you what's about to happen, and God has told you that he loves you, and God has told you what he has promised to do in your life, and you believe him. You do. You believe him, and you trust him. But let's be honest, all right? Nobody has ever seen or gone through what Jesus is about to go through, including Jesus. Right? This is all new territory. No one's ever done this before. And I'm not saying that Jesus was afraid or or scared to go to the cross. He wasn't. But on the night before Jesus was crucified, he's in a garden praying. He's having a conversation with his father, who he believes is, is right here with him, loves him, and promises to take care of him no matter what. But the scene that we, that we find Jesus in is a scene that we don't like to picture Jesus in. They're in the garden. What, what do you mean? I grew up in this little church in Indiana. We had a huge picture in the back of, uh, of the sanctuary of, of, the, of the church, all right? And it was Jesus kneeling in front of a boulder, looking up into this light coming out of heaven, and he has a happy look on his face there in the garden. That's not even biblical. Well, what do you mean? Because when you read the Bible, here's what we find. Jesus is in the garden, but he's laying in the dirt, face down, like in the fetal position, crying and sobbing. He says, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. And here's his prayer. Dear Father, if there's any other way to accomplish what needs to be accomplished other than what's going to happen tomorrow, I vote for that. I'm asking, can we we go with the other plan, all right? But... Yeah, and we need to balance that out with Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you have to understand that that painting wasn't totally off. If it's depicting the fact that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, then I think it it captures correctly what's going on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, don't you? But, since and done, but if what's about to happen is the only way to accomplish what you want to accomplish, then I'm in. I'm in, not my will, but yours be done, all right? And see, see again, I've grown up in church all my life, all, all my life, right? And I've always read that or heard about all that, and I've always thought that the reason that Jesus was so stressed out there in the garden in those hours leading up to the cross was that, that dread of physical punishment. He knew what was coming, the pain, the whipping, the crucifixion, and he really dreaded that. But I don't, I don't, I don't think that the fear of pain is what caused Jesus to sweat for to pour out, the Bible says, like, like drops of blood, I think what Jesus was dreading was something much worse than physical pain. See, Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote a big chunk of the Bible. This is what he writes about what happened there when Jesus went to to the cross to pay for our sin. He says, there's even more than that that went on there on that cross. He says this, for our sake, and he's talking about us, right? For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to what? What's the the next word? To what? 
to be. In the Bible I grew up with, it said to become. He made Jesus to become sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, we, talking about us, might become the righteousness, everything that is right about God, that we might have that. See, when Jesus hung So that we might become everything that's right about God? What on earth? By the way, so um, what, what, when we talk about Jesus' sufferings, this is an important piece of all of this, is that Jesus truly is suffering the wrath of God in our place. If hell is what we have earned for our sins, then whatever Christ truly suffered on the cross, and this would include the, the major suffering, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? being forsaken by God the way he was. That, you know, we're, we're talking about Christ's being forsaken by the Father in a very real sense. Jesus is now suffering the torment of what hell is, even though he's not technically in hell, but he is suffering the wrath of God, even to the point where he is forsaken by God. This is all part of Christ's sufferings. So what Christ suffered truly is the punishment and the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. This is most certainly true. But it's not that he suffered because God made him to be sin. Instead, he was punished. This is, you know, again, Isaiah 53 helps here. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. Yeah, you know, so the idea is is that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all and he is being punished in in our place as a substitute for our transgression. So what you're going to hear here is is kind of going to miss the point of even that. We continue. On the cross, he didn't just pay for our sins. I sinned, Jesus paid the price. Although he certainly did that. All right? But 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 even more went on them. On there that we miss a lot of times because it's yeah. So yeah, he, 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 yeah, he suffered for our sins, but it was more than that. No, that's oh, man. According to the, to God's word, it says this: God laid on him all of our sin. He didn't just pay for it. All right, for a few moments, he became my sin, and he was punished as the sinner. Which is worse, <laughs> the the suffering he experienced or having it laid on him? Ugh. He took on everything that you and I and everybody else had ever or would ever do wrong. Everything, all of our screw-ups, all of our mistakes, all our bad choices. God looked at his son and went, I blame you. This is on you. And he, and he, and he laid it on Jesus. Jesus became sin. He didn't just die for sin. He became sin. And this is how it works. Sin separates us from God because God is holy and sin can't be in his presence. And the wage of sin is, that's on page two of the Bible, Right? So I read a book, it's five books in a year. Ah, oh, I'm spiritual. Look at that, all right, so, but, but I'm not very smart. I actually ordered the wrong book. They came in, I read it, it ended up being a good book. All right, so anyway, the, the book's called Soul Work by a guy named Randy Harris, and he, and he says this. He says, Jesus suffered, but there are human beings who have suffered more than Jesus did. And that's true. That's not taking anything away from what Jesus did, but we have a really cruel world. Hurts a lot of people. We, all, we know that's true, right? However, if Christian theology, the view of God, if Christian theology is to be believed, there has never been anyone, anyone else who has bore the sins of the world. But if in some sense Jesus becomes the sin bearer, it's on me, then he does experience separation from the Father that he hadn't experienced before. Something like the experience of um, going to hell. Where do you expect all the sin of the world to go? 
So what Jesus is dreading is not just physical pain of crucifixion, although that's a lot. What Jesus is dreading is the experience of knowing and experiencing for the first time God's not here anymore. He's not near. He can't be. He's not with me. And in some sense, this part is accurate. Convoluted, not taught clearly, but it is in some senses accurate. We continue. Because I'm sin. So the question is, how could Jesus do that? Well, that's not even the right question. Why? Why would Jesus choose to, to do that? Because in other places in, in this story, you find out this is a volunteer position. Jesus could have bailed on it at any time. Somebody you know, pulls out a sword and wants to set Jesus free, and Jesus says, put the sword away. Do you not know I could call thousands of angels? I could get out of this like that. I could walk away from this, but I'm going to. So my question is, what kind of man, a person, right, would choose to trust and hold on to God in a painful, overwhelming situation and circumstance like Jesus was facing? What kind of person does that? And here's the answer. Choose to trust and hold on to God. In, yeah, wow, that is just bizarre. The kind of person who lives their life by a code. Uh, uh, a man or woman. Yes, it's all because Jesus, you know, he lived his life by a code. And yet, which biblical texts say this? Who, who has faith. Uh, a person who has a strong, unmoving, this is my strategy for life, and I'm not going to let go of it. Uh, where, which of the apostles talking about Jesus's unflagging strategy for life? See, in that moment, in that moment that Jesus becomes the sin bearer and experiences separation from God, as he's hanging there on that cross, he actually believes, he's counting on, he's putting all his chips in the middle of the table and going, I'm betting everything on who God is and, and who I am to God. And he actually believes as he's hanging there on the cross that God will actually keep his promise and not abandon him. Which texts say this about Jesus? Yeah, back in, that, in the book that I read, Randy Harris, the author, he points out something that I, that I missed or I, I, for, I used to know or forgot, but it goes like this. He says, in all of the Bible that talks about the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead, the resurrection is always the work of God the Father. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. He's always raised from the dead by someone else. And Harris throws this out, and it's kind of controversial. And he says, perhaps of all the things that Jesus was able to do as the son of God in the flesh, perhaps the son doesn't have the ability to raise himself. He has to depend on God keeping his promise. Um, have you read John chapter 2, verse 19? Let me read it to you. Jesus clears the money changers out of the temple. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Watch Jesus' words. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he's speaking about the temple of his body. So when we talk about who, ro who raised Jesus from the grave, we have texts that say the Father did it, we have texts that say the Spirit did it, and we have Je uh, Jesus saying he's doing, he's going to do it. So who raised Jesus from the dead? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what Scripture teaches us. And if that's the case, then, then what Jesus does on the cross is to totally surrender to the Father with this going on in his head. It goes like this. I will bear all the sins of the world. And then I trust that you, Father, will not abandon my soul to, to Hades, to death, but you'll raise me up. Here it is. Like you promised to do. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying this. This is what it looks like, folks. 
This is what it looks like to totally trust God with everything. No, that's not what Jesus is saying, because if that's what Jesus is saying, he would have said it. But no text says this. That's the strategy for my life. What is it? Total surrender. So, Father, I trust you. I believe you're going to take care of me, so here we go. And apparently, Jesus gets up off the ground and maybe brushes all the dirt off of his, off of his clothes, wipes his, the tears out of his eyes, walks back to where the people are. The soldiers show up, and they arrest him. And Jesus confidently walks into whatever comes next. Whatever this world, whatever circumstance comes, comes next. He lives out his faith, his mission, his strategy for life. He doesn't let go of it. What was it? I am God's son. He loves me. He'll take care of me, just like he promised. So bring it on. Here we go. And off they went. Off they went, right? And yet no text says this. First stop, he's taken in front of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the top religious leader, the guy who kind of ran the whole lynch, lynch party. We're gonna, get, we're gonna get rid of Jesus. And stands Jesus up in front of everybody. And he says, he says he's asking this question. He says, so tell us, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you really the son of God? Now, does that sound familiar? Because about three years ago in a desert, somebody else asked him the same question right? Jesus, are you really the son of God? Because here's kind of between the lines here, because if you say no, if you let go of who you claim to be, and if you let go of what God you know, promised you or whatever that is, all right, all of this goes away. And everything that's about to happen to you doesn't have to happen. It just, it just goes away. So Jesus, are you the son of God? Say no, say no. And instead, Jesus looked back and goes, I am. Yes, I am. It, it is as you say. And the high priest looks back and goes, well, then you're going to die. Let the spitting and the punching and the beatings begin. And all oh, they did. Remember this. All he had to do is say, no, I'm not. And he goes home. He goes home. He's a free man. But he doesn't. Next stop, they take him to Herod the king, right? So Herod, Herod's never met Jesus, but he's heard some stuff about Jesus. Like, like Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had been real critical of Herod. And so Herod has, brings him in, cuts his head off. It's like halftime show of a party that, that he's throwing, all right? So he knows about Jesus. And Luke chapter 23 says that Herod, when he heard Jesus was going to be hauled into his courtroom, he's actually excited because he'd heard Jesus does miracles. And he wanted to see some. So when Jesus ends up in front of him, Herod's opening line is, hey, do some tricks. Do some tricks and miracles, all right? Do some magic or something like that, and I'll help you out. Just do some... Com- Miracles or whatever you call them. Does that sound familiar? Jesus, do some tricks. Like throw yourself off the roof. Let go of who you are and what you have and why you come. Just, just let go of that, all right? And, and all your problems go away. Let go of your faith. Let go of your strategy for life. And all this gets easy fast. Jesus is responding. Yeah, Herod was saying, get rid of your strategy for life, Jesus. Notice this is all eisegesis. He's reading things into these texts that are not there. Responds back to King Herod, he just stares at him. Nothing, no, no answer, no tricks, no miracles. You know why? He didn't need to. Why? Because he knew who he was. That wasn't on trial. He knew, all right? He knew who he was to his father, and he knew what his father had promised to do in his life. So he just stares at Herod like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. If this is really what was going on in Jesus' passion, how come the text doesn't say it? And how come no apostle ever said this is what was going on? Hmm? So Herod says, get get out of here and send it to Pilate. 
the Roman governor, all right? And before Pilate will even meet, meet with him, he has him whipped and beaten, all right? So it has the flesh ripped off of his back. He has a robe put on him, and then he says, hey, I got an idea. Put a crown made out of thorns. Just crush that into his skull, all right? Then, then we'll see what people think about the king of the, of the Jews, and they mock him. And for the record, Pilate didn't think Jesus deserved to die. He says that over and over, all right? He, because he didn't even care about this stuff. He didn't believe in all the God faith stuff, all right? He was just hoping that if he, if he tortured Jesus bad enough that the Jewish people in that town wouldn't riot and he could wash his hands and just walk away and be done with it. So he gets Jesus in front of him and goes, okay, now, just defend yourself. Say something. Give me something to work with, all right? Just, just say something and I'll let you go. I'll get you out of this. Again, no response. No response. And then here comes the final familiar temptation. So Pilate said, said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at, at all unless it had been given to you from above. Hey, Jesus, do you know who I am? I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm so important. Just acknowledge that and I'll let you go. And Jesus' response, finally, you're not in charge and I'm not gonna bow down. Okay, fine. And they nailed him to a cross. They nailed him to a cross, right? They took him out. And Where did Pilate tell Jesus to bow down? He didn't. And they nailed him to a cross. And the worst moment of Jesus' life was not the pain of a whip on his back or the punch to, to a face or, or nails through his body. It was that moment when he was hanging up there on that cross and he knew that he had become sin and was cut off as in, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? And he died up there on that cross. And all of his enemies said, I told you so. I told you I wasn't the son of God. And they were wrong. They were wrong. Why? Because three days later, God, his father, kept his promise and raised his son, whom he loved, from the grave, which is why we're here right now. It's called Easter. Now, I'm almost done. That's not really true. All right, so <laughs> I just thought I'd help you hang on a little bit longer. All right, so here's what. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. But, but I want to leave you with this. See, most of us, most of, not all, but most of us in, in this room right now, we believe what I just talked about. We believe that's true on a certain level. Maybe all of it, maybe parts of it, stuff like that. But there's a lot of us have come to a point in our life where we actually believe by faith that what Jesus did on a cross counts for us pays for our sins and, 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 and our mis mistakes, all right? And because we have faith in Jesus, we believe that everything we've ever done and everything we will do wrong in the future is forgiven. And then we're connected to God. So here we have a, a mention of the forgiveness of sins. He gets credit for that. So you got a little bit of a gospel nugget going on here. But uh, this is not really his major point now, is it? So because it's not, that's our gospel nugget sound bite. Here we go. There's the gospel. Hope you uh, were able to take note of it real quick because it was flying by pretty fast. God, we actually believe that. Which, by the way, is true. I don't know where he's going with this. It's okay. That, that's still, that's great. It's true. It's, it's our faith. But what does that mean to most of us? See, see, many people, and I'll just get more specific. Most Christians that I've talked to reduce, you know, forgiveness and connection God down to. When I, when I ask them, so what difference does that make in your life? They kind of hem and haw for a while, and finally they come out with this. Well, bottom line, I, I guess the biggest difference it makes in my life is after I die, I think I'll go to heaven. Which, Not much certainty there. Which is true, which is, which is good. It's true, right? And while Jesus you know, talked about what was going to happen in, in the future someday, 
after we die, maybe, maybe later today, maybe decades from now, he talks about what happens to a person after their funeral, but, but, but Jesus spends most of his words talking about the kingdom of heaven is not somewhere out there, right? I mean, I mean, again, I've been raised in church all my life, and when I hear the word heaven, the first thing that comes to my mind... Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth. That still stands. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, they are here among us, and each congregation technically is an embassy of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not on this earth. It, you can't point to it and say, ah, oh, there's the kingdom of God right there. It's on the map. Is, is the Disney castle sitting on a cloud somewhere on the other side of Mars, right? And then one day, here comes Jesus. He's going to float right down here with us, all right? So, but, but Jesus didn't even describe anything like that. Jesus used most of his words saying the kingdom of heaven is like, it's, it's available now, as in right now in this life. And, and here's why that's so important. Well, I definitely want to go to heaven after I die. And I think I speak for all of us in this, in this, in this room. I need help in this life. As if being a Christian nowhere addresses anything in this life. Have you read any of the pastoral epistles and how... They talk about all of the ways in which we do our good works because we are now alive in Christ and the impact it has on the here and the now, even though we're in a temporary and cursed creation. Like today, right? I'm pretty confident in what happens after, after I die, okay? All right? I need help like today, like right now, don't you? Again, I think I speak for everybody you know, that's listening. It goes like this, because we all have deserts in our life. Really dry times in our life, right? It's we all have deserts in our life? What? times when we really get hungry for something, right? So we have temptation in our life. Life beats us up. Sometimes it crucifies us all, all the time, right? You ever, you ever been there? So, so here's a little preview. You know, starting next week, I hope you come back, but we're going to spend the next several weeks, maybe the next several months, looking at what would or what could our life look like if we actually believed, really believed in the reality that God is right here and heaven's not just someplace out there, but is around us, around our heads, like air is around our heads. What difference would that make in our life? But I want to leave you with this. Listen, I don't know most of you personally. A few of you, right? I don't know what's gone on in your life to get you to this point. I don't know what, what you're in the middle of right now. I don't know what's going to happen later, later today, all right? Here's what I know. Jesus was the kind of man who lived his life by, a, by, by a, a strategy. He had a strategy. Yeah, Jesus had a strategy, although the strategy is never mentioned anywhere in the apostolic record. But, but by a code, the strategy for his life went like this. God is my father, and he loves me, and he's near, and he will take care of me. My question is this. Would your strategy for your life look any different if you believe that what Jesus believed was true for him could be true for you? Would that make a difference if, if you believe that? Well, me... <laughs> what is this? Would it make a difference? Well, you haven't even shown me a biblical text that says that Jesus, from the time he was baptized, lived by a strategy and a code. Let me say it another way. I love this. Many of us have faith in Jesus. I believe all the right stuff about Jesus. How about this? I want to have the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus. Where is this doctrine taught? I believe I'm going to heaven. He died on a cross for me. Now, here, I want to believe that the things that Jesus believed were true for him. I want to believe those things are true for me. Now, Right? I, I, I want to I I hold on to the strategy that he had for his life, and I want to hold on to for, for, for my life and believe that it's true for me as well. So again, I, I don't know you very well, right? I don't know what your life looks like, past, present, or future, good, bad, or ugly. Or, but I want to throw this out, all right? I want to throw this out, and you can do, for it what you, do with it what you, what you want, but here's, here's, a, here's a strategy for life. 
It goes like this. Because God is my father, and because I know God doesn't hate me, he loves me, and because God is near, he's, like, he's right here, and he promises to take care of me, how about, how about this? I can face and walk through anything because I believe that if anything in this life tries to crucify me and I wind up on a cross, God will raise me from the dead. Oh, no. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so we've totally allegorized the, uh, the elements of Jesus' sufferings and death in a way that is, wow, just bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. We continue. That's not a bad way to live. That's pretty awesome, right? As a matter of fact, whether you believe it or not, it's possible for you. Let's just say it out loud together and listen to how awesome it sounds out loud. One, two, three. I can face and walk through anything because I believe that if anything in this life tries to crucify me and I wind up on a... Cross, here we go. God will raise me from the dead. That's a good way to live your life. That is a good strategy for life, right? So let me ask you this what's your strategy for life? What's your plan? What drives your life? What are you counting on to, to take care of you no matter what this life does to crucify you? And you know what I mean by that? Your heart, your soul, your mind, your family, uh, another relationship, another marriage. You know, crucify your faith. See, the temptation from Satan will always be the same. You want to make a deal? Right? Say, well, nation song. I made a deal with a, a bad wolf, and the bad wolf promised he wouldn't bite me anymore. But that's just not true. So notice, now Jesus' life is a parable. Your life is the important thing, not what he did, but it's just a, his life is an allegory. Your life is the real thing. A lot of us have made that deal. But the deal goes like this. You let go of what God says is true about himself and you let go of what God promises to do in your life and I promise it'll get better. And it's a lie. But, let me, but a lot of us have struck that deal. I know what God says is true. And I know what God promises and all this. I'm gonna let go of that. I'm gonna do something, something different. Let me ask you, how's that working out for you? How's that going? And is there something better? Followed by this, how can I believe that what was true for Jesus will be or could possibly be true for me? Why should I trust him? And there's only one reason you should ever trust anything that God promised or anything Jesus said, only one reason. And if anybody ever tells you to trust God for, and leaves this out, don't believe him. There's only one reason to trust God and put your faith in Jesus. And it goes like this, on a day in history, God the Father kept his promise to Jesus and raised him from the dead, just like he said he would do. And that same God promises to take care of you, no matter what circumstance of your life crucifies you, God will take care of you. God promises. Which text says that? That's a good way to live. Now, we're gonna take communion together, all right? And, and, and we're gonna pass out a little piece of bread and, and a little, little cup of juice and we're going to remember we're going to give thanks for what Jesus did for us and let me just remind everybody what he did for us he became my sin he became he didn't just die for it he became it you know why why he became separated from his father so that I don't ever have to be and you don't ever have to be you don't have to worry about God cutting you off it's not going to happen so we're going to take communion together now I've shared this several times over the last year for, for most of my life I have hated communion service. Right, because you probably run it through the law. All right, because it's like, here goes another five minutes where it's just guilt and shame, guilt and shame. God is good and I am not. Jesus died on a cross for my sins, but he shouldn't have. 
Because ever since I became a Christian, I've screwed up so many other things. I guess he made a mistake. And so I spend the next five minutes just rehashing and bringing up all the stuff of my life. And it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just depressing. Yet uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, is gospel, broken and shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus says. But the last, the last couple of years of my life made some changes. Because I actually believe that God is my Father and that he loves me. And then he's actually forgiven everything, and he promises to go through life and take care of me. So here's a decision I made a few months ago. It goes like this. I let myself off the mat. God forgave me. It's time to forgive myself. It's just too much. I did the best I could. It's time to forgive yourself. Right? And if I could do it over, I'd do it over. But I can't redo my past. But I can make a strategy for my life from this point on. And that's available to everybody. We're going to read. Yeah, and then when your strategy for life fails and you fall short again, then what are you going to do? Read you know, what, what, what Paul wrote about just kind of summed up everything that Jesus has done for us, uh, a promise to us. So let's just read this out loud together. Then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing an awesome song and, and, and take communion together. This is out of Romans chapter 8. Let's just say it out loud together. Here we go. One, two, three. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him... Yeah, these aren't the words of institution. And what's with the sappy music? Graciously give us all things. Here's the questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, that's so weak. Here, let's do it again. One, two, three. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here we go. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that's called? A great strategy for life. A great strategy for life. That's a better way a better way. And for that, he gets applause. We're going to take communion. If in these next five or six minutes, you can get past all the rehash in your past, if you could get to this, if all that's true, maybe in these next few minutes, I need to rethink how I'm going to live my life, my strategy from now on. Let's pray. God, Done, done, wow, wow. Yeah, I do I need to add anything else to that? That is uh, contestant number five, Jim Burgeon, for our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest for 2015. And you'll have the opportunity to vote on who you think should be uh, given this uh, <clears throat> title of of the uh, the preacher of the Worst Easter Sermon of 2015. You'll have the ability to vote tomorrow after the program. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>